This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of having on the podcast Professor Elvio Silva, who is in the Department of Pathology at MD Anderson Cancer Center. He's a good friend and colleague, and it's always a, a pleasure to speak to Elvio. I always learn so much uh, every time we have a discussion on, on topics related to gynecologic oncology. So the topic of this podcast is going to be on the precursors in the ovarian stroma, another pathway to explain the origin of ovarian serous neoplasms. Uh, this was uh, based on an article published in uh, Human Pathology. So uh, thank you, Elvio. Always, uh, always a pleasure to uh, to have you on the uh, on the podcast. Thank you, Pedro. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure for me. So Elvio, it's always, as I mentioned, it's always fun speaking with you as well. And um, I wanted to, to start by um, asking you, you know, noting that so far, obviously for ovarian cancers, these are thought to arise based on several theories, arising from the fallopian tube based on the theory by uh, Crum and, and Kerman, or from the fallopian or from the ovary based on the theory by Scully. So now uh, we're considering or proposing uh, a third pathway, and um, how do we come about in uh, in developing this uh, this theory? Okay, um, let me clarify something. First of all, uh, in the paper, I talk about the theory of Kram uh, and Kerman, uh, but uh, that is because they publish a lot of papers, more than thirty-five papers between the two of them. This the theory of the stick in reality, it started in the year 2000 in the Netherlands. Mm. Uh, Dr. Paul Van Dies and Jürgen Pick were the ones who started this, and they published in GYN Oncology. Uh, then Chris Kahn and Bob Kerman continued in 2006, so that is six years after. So that's one point. The other point is that uh, we don't have a different pathway. We are just expanding what Dr. Scali said. We agree totally with Dr. Scali. He proposed this thing. And he said the tumor cells are coming from epithelial areas, the epithelial areas of the inclusion cyst. We want to add three points to Dr. Scali's theory. Number one, you don't need to have epithelial cells to have an epithelial tumor, because in the ovary, you can get metaplasia in the stroma and through mesenchymal epithelial transition from the mesenchyma, you get epithelial cells. So that is one point that Dr. Scali didn't say we want to add. The second point that we want to add is that it is very, very important to understand how ovarian cancer develops to know something about the embryologic development of the Mullerian duct. The Mullerian duct is an epithelial structure, but it's not coming from any epithelium. It's not coming from the ectoderm or the endoderm. It's coming from the mesoderm. So the mesenchyma is the origin of the Mullerian duct. We are saying the same thing can happen with tumors. So if it sounds weird, the theory of mesenchymal epithelial transition, just check how the Mullerian duct develops, and you are going to see that it's the same thing. The third point that we want to bring uh, to expand the Scully theory 
is that in order to understand ovarian cancer, most of those are serous type of tumor. And it is important to study all serous tumors together, not concentrated on the high-grade ovarian only. Uh, we want to include low-grade, borderline, cystadenofibroma, and then it becomes a lot easier to understand the problem. Okay, so that is my answer to the question. Very well. I think, Elvia, that's a perfect introduction into uh, this topic. And um, and as a follow-up to that same statement you just made, um, and I think this is often a question that we as gynecologic oncologists have, is that I want to ask you, do you consider that in order to develop ovarian cancer, there's a transition from benign to borderline to low-grade and then ultimately high-grade? In other words, do all high-grade tumors come from a previous low-grade tumor. Yeah, and yeah, <clears throat> it's a very interesting uh, idea. Today we know, just looking at the slides, we know that many high-grade ovarian cancers, or some, are associated with low-grade tumors. Some are associated with borderline, and there are many that are associated with cystadenofibromas. So common sense, which is very important to, to use common sense. Common sense tells me that the benign lesion was there first, and then it became the malignant. So if we can understand how the benign develops, then we are going to understand the malignant. I don't think that all the malignant tumors are coming from the benign tumors. I don't think so. Mm. But there are many that are related. And, the, you know, for example, if you are looking with a microscope and you see two different foci inside the ovary of carcinoma, you are going to say one is a metastasis from the other because it's a malignancy. But if you see two areas of borderline, well, it could be. But what about if you see two glands, cystadenofibroma? They cannot be a metastasis because they are benign. Hmm. So that is where I look at many cases. And when I saw that, I said, well, these glands are either connected to the surface epithelium or they are connected to each other. Hmm. And I did a lot of deep perceptions and I could never find the connection. Therefore, I said, these glands have to arise here, right hmm. there. And the, that is when you start going down from the more malignant to the more benign, you are going to end up with endosalpingiosis and endometriosis. Mm. I always said, if we understand how endosalpingiosis and endometriosis develop, that's going to be the beginning to understand how cancer develops, because it's going to be the same thing. So that's why we want to study more benign lesions, not because we think that they are all coming from benign, but they are related. Mm. Very, very interesting. So that brings me to the point, and, and I think obviously you already alluded a little bit to it, about the, the hypothesis of this particular study on the precursors in the ovarian stroma. And if you can tell us a little bit about the methodology that you used when putting together this study. Okay, the hypothesis was that something that I had in my mind for a long time, that different precursors apply to the different types of serous tumors. Uh, for example, in the borderline, you have all of them, you find endosalpingiosis. 
in the low-grade serous, you find endosalpingiosis and you find something else called macropapillae. In the high-grade, you find the association with the benign cyst and also with the polyploid cells. So that was the, the hypothesis. Let's see if we can find that. What was the methodology? It was very, very simple. The methodology was, I was having a continuous dialogue with the tissue, okay? <laughs> now, at this point, you may want to stop the podcast and uh, <laughs> I should receive treatment. But I always say the tissue talk to us. The tissue, all the tissues are talking to us. When I look at the microscope, you know, a pathology, when we look at slide, we have one thing that we have to do immediately, which is to render a diagnosis. That is what you need for the treatment. But after we made the diagnosis, we can just go to the next case and forget it, or we can try to understand what we are seeing. And that is what I'm saying, the tissue is talking to us. So imagine that I see a low-grade serous tumor and there is a borderline next to it, and then there is endosalpingiosis. Okay, so I record that. Next time I see a low-grade, there is a borderline and there is endosalpingiosis. Well, after 10 or 15 times, I say, hey, here there is an association. That is how the tissue talk to us. Now, uh, sometimes I'm wrong and I cannot reproduce. So looking more and more slides, you are gonna either conf uh, confirm or refute the, the idea. And uh, that, that was the methodology, just looking at cases and cases and cases. And whenever there was something I didn't understand, I did deeper sections, I did immunohistochemistry, and I recorded every step of the... Today, I mean, I'm looking at normal ovaries in patients. I think that the, the, the rate of endosalpingiosis in patients having endometrial cancer is different than the ones having a live myosarcoma, for example. And those are things that you are, that is the methodology. It's just looking at slides and slides and slides. Uh, now, I, I am lucky because I am semi-retired and I have time to do that. <laughs> you don't need to sign out cases. That's a different problem. You know? Sometimes I spend 45 minutes with a case just because I'm trying to understand the case. So that's the methodology. Great, and and, uh, and obviously speaks to to getting to the core of, of pathology, and, and I love that term that, you know, have the tissue uh, speak to you. Um, but Elvio, I wanted to, um, perhaps before we get into the, the findings of the study, if you can help us, because, you know, who better than you to go through um, a brief explanation of what are the different terms that, that are used or evaluated in this pathological evaluation. And I'm going to kind of just name each one, if you can just then describe what, what that term means. So you, you talked about evaluating inclusion cysts. What do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, inclusion cysts are invaginations of the surface epithelium. And the the inclusion cysts usually, uh, when there is an ovarian tumor, they undergo uh, tubal metaplasia. And that's why it is difficult to separate an inclusion cyst from endosalpingiosis, because endosalpingiosis is pure tubal metaplasia. I think it's possible to separate endosalpingiosis. Uh, usually, there are multiple lesions. The surface is smooth, is without invagination. There are calcifications. But the, all the terms that you see, I mean, the terms are confusing because uh, they are pathology terms, but you don't need to learn all those terms. 
what you need to learn is that there are inclusion seas with an invagination of the surface, and then there are areas of epithelial areas that are born in the stroma, just pop out in the stroma. And that is the origin of the theory that we say, we say almost out of nothing because you have a stroma and then you have a gland and you don't know where that gland came from. The terms that you see in the paper refer to the type of tumor. So if it's a very low grade, benign or borderline, you are going to have endosalpingiosis. If it's a low grade serocarcinoma, you have the macropapilla. If it's a high grade, you are going to have the polyploid cells. So, but those are epithelial cells that are coming up in the stroma. So that's why there are different terms. But all of them refer to the same thing. Group of cells that through metaplastic transition appear in the stroma. Now, in the, the, the inclusions is important because when they get atrophic, that is when you see more uh, high-grade serocarcinoma associated with, with this sympathy. Uh, okay. Yeah. And, and another term that you use is mesenchymal epithelial complexes. And, and I think that this is where endosalpingiosis uh, comes in into the terminology. Can you uh, tell us a little bit more about that term? Yeah, mesenchymal epithelial complexes. It means that you have mesenchyma that is transforming into epithelium. And the complexes are uh, endosalpingiosis is one. And then there is one that is called macropapillae. That's a very interesting thing for pathology. And we have some photos in the paper where from the stroma, suddenly there are epithelial cells forming a papilla. And, mm. you know, that has to be for a trans mesenchymal epithelial transition for ferrognitino, that kind of thing. And the other thing of the mesenchymal epithelial complex is in a very high-grade tumor, when you have polyploid cells. The polyploid okay. cells are the same thing, mesenchymal epithelial transition. So according to the degree, the, the, the grade, I'm sorry, the grade of the tumor is the type of the complex that you are gonna have. Great, and then that brings us to that uh, term, invasive micropapilla. Yeah, the invasive micropapilla, uh, it, it is the same thing. Some people call it inverted, Micropapillae mm. or macropapillae. Usually, most low-grade serous tumors are micropapillary. The papillae are very thin, very mm. small. Uh, sometimes they have this thick papillae, which is macropapillae, composed mainly of a stroma. And the, the stroma becomes a very important thing because I think it's part of the microenvironment of the tumor. And that's why this is what I am studying now, the microenvironment of those tumors. Great. And the last term, uh, and I think you mentioned it before, associated with more of the high-grade uh, tumors is the polypoid giant cancer cells. Yeah. Probably you heard Dr. Jinson Liu talking about those polyploid cells. That is something that came many years ago with a theory that cancer is in reality something going back in the differentiation to the primitive st uh, stage of the embryo when you have a blastula and it's a polyploid cell. And it's a very interesting theory uh, and it could be very practical because if that is correct, uh, one of the treatments could be to induce maturation of those cells mm -hmm. uh, because those cells are very undifferentiated. But the polyploid cells uh, 
are similar to the blastomere that we have after the zygot in the developing of the fetus. Okay, great. So let's get to the uh, to the results of the study. You studied uh, 300 cases of ovarian serous tumor. I believe 25 were benign, 103 were low grade, and 172 were high grade. What would you say are the main findings of the study? What should uh, we take away from from this study? Well, uh, the main findings were that we confirm that there are different precursors for benign, borderline, low-grade, and high-grade serotumors. But we also confirm something else, which is very important. Each one of those precursors participate in the developing of all the tumor, but in different percentages. So it's rare to find endosalpingiosis in a high-grade. It's very common mm -hmm. in the low-grade. But you find sometimes in the high grade, and that is what makes the family together, and that is how it's uh, a lot easy to understand. And all these precursors reproduce the embryologic development of the Mullerian duct. That's why I believe in this theory because this is not something that came from a dream. I mean, we are seeing the same thing that happened with the Mullerian duct. That is what we have confirmed in the study. Great. So, Elvio, I mean, uh, this brings us to a point that some would potentially challenge uh, this theory and say, well, you know, when you look at sticks, the serous tubal intraepithelial carcinomas, uh, those are the precursors of ovarian cancer. Uh, how do you see these playing into the theory of how ovarian cancer develops? Yeah. Well, everybody can be right. Uh, can be right. Some people can be wrong. That's okay. We have to accept that. <laughs> I believe in a stick. I believe, that of course, a stick exists. <clears throat> what I don't believe is that the stick is the origin of high grade of an that, 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 that doesn't make sense. I believe in a stick. And if you, uh, 30 years ago in the 90s, 1990, we wrote a paper on serocarcinoma of the endometrium in endometrial polyps. And we said that when those tumors disseminate in the peritoneum, you have the surface papillary carcinoma of the peritoneum. And I have a photo in that paper showing that the surface papillary carcinoma of the peritoneum has multiple small lesions on top of the ovary, in the mentum, in the peritoneum, and in the mucosal the fallopian tube. Because if you check the literature, stick is a lot more frequent when there is surface papillary uh, tumor. But uh, whoever, whoever says that the stick is so important, I just ask everybody, just read the data from Chris Cram. Chris Cram is the one who wrote more things about this. In 2006, that was the first paper, he said most cases of high-grade serocarcinoma have a stick. Okay, fine. And you have not seen that because you didn't put the entire fallopian tube before. So everybody got scared and the fallopian tube became the most important organ every section from the entire fallopian tube. Nine years after 2015, he wrote another paper saying, well, in reality, you find them in 40% only. So most cases you don't. And mm -hmm. that's when he said, we need to look for another thing. And the paper is dualistic, something. And it's funny that to propose a fallopian tube, he wrote like 20 papers. When he realized that he was wrong, he, he did only one paper. And if you mm. didn't read it, I'm sorry. And now in 2022, he sent me a paper that he's uh, submitting to a journal. And he said that you find a stick in 17%. Hmm. So coming down, 
when you really look for it, uh, it's, a, it's a very sticky situation, basically. Yes. Uh, so I don't know. I I, I don't think that the, the you know we are gonna go over a different how to support our theory, and I don't see how how you can support the theory of the stick. This the only problem is the fixation that we all have that epithelial tumor has to be from an epithelium, and the only epithelium with zero differentiation is fallopian tube. Therefore, it should be from there. Well, that's a mistake because you are not including the mesenchymal epithelial transition of the development of the endoc. Excellent. So, Elvia, that brings us to the point uh, regarding uh, some theories that steroid hormones might play a role in the development of ovarian cancer. And uh, you, you studied this before. Can you expand on this a bit? Look, I, I, I think that nobody should have any doubts about this. And actually, I know that. Why? Well, first of all, we have uh, clinical samples. You don't see serotumor before menarche. So you need some hormones to, to start seeing serotumor. Endosalpingiosis is very frequent in polycystic ovaries, which is a hormonal problem. The metaplastic tumor of the fallopian tube is uh, equivalent to zero borderline. It happens in pregnant patients. Borderline tumors change during pregnancy. Uh, and then we have the animal studies. The animal studies are great because we have the two extremes. We, uh, we did studies on the guinea pig. When I started with this theory of the hormones, I said, well, Let's look for an animal that almost never developed ovarian tumors. And I found out that the guinea pig is one of those. And I started giving every hormone that I could find. And I was able to induce ovarian papillary tumors in 70% of the animals. So I know that that thing happened. On the other extreme, we have the uh, ovarian tumors in chickens. You know, that is the typical model of ovarian cancer because if you stimulate the chickens under light, 50% of the chicken will develop an ovarian tumor. Now, um, that is the origin of the theory of incest and ovulation by Fatala in the 70s. It was a great observation. And here, the main persons uh, working with this thing are Buck and Karen Hale, H-A-L-E. I talked to them many times and my question was always, do you find the tumor in the ovary or do you find the tumor in the ovidote in the fallopian tube? And they told me over and over, it's always in the ovary. So I don't know any uh, animal study showing that it's in the fallopian tube. And uh, again, let's go to the embryology. How the Mullerian duct develops? the Mullerian duct needs to have a stimulation by hormone. If you put hormone disruptors, the Mullerian duct does not develop. So we have clinical data, we have animal data, we have embryology examples. And you, what do you give to the patients with low-grade serotumor today? You give aromatase inhibitors. Why? Because you want to stop the hormone. Why do you want to stop the hormone? because obviously you are accepting that the hormones are important. <laughs> my only problem, my only problem with the hormones is that we are, we are not doing this properly. In the steroid cycle, there are 78 
hormones and hormone metabolites. And you are giving only a disinhibitor that stops six hormones. What about the other 72? Why don't we study all the hormones? And that is the explanation why this thing doesn't work in all patients, because you just give aromatase inhibitors to stop six hormones, and you don't care about the other 72. We need to study all the hormones. The technology is available, and that is what I'm trying to do. So I hope, uh, you know, uh, when, when, when people start putting money into the study of the fallopian tube and put some money to study the hormone, this is going to change. Interesting. And, and Ilya, I think I heard you say, um, uh, because I think it kind of goes along the same principle of the hormones uh, and, and the hormones uh, status. Um, you mentioned that serous borderline tumors are more aggressive during pregnancy. Um, what, what, what does that mean? And should all ovarian tumors then, by that definition, be, behave more aggressively during pregnancy? Well, it is possible, it is possible, but it is difficult to prove. Difficult to prove the high grade is more aggressive. First of all, uh, they are aggressive enough. So I don't know how you are gonna prove that they are more aggressive. Second, most tumors occur after menopause or perimenopause in the, the high grade. So that's why the borderline is a lot easier to study because they develop in younger patients and you can separate non-invasive implants versus invasive implants, so there is a difference. We, we published uh, many years ago a study saying that we have found areas of microinvasion in almost 70% of the borderline tumor resected during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So, and that is highly unusual. <clears throat> the other thing is that there are papers of uh, g oncology that they found uh, borderline tumor during a C-section. And in the C-section time, you cannot do the staging biopsies. So they took just the ovarian and they checked the peritoneum and there were multiple lesions in the peritoneum. And they said, okay, we will come back later. Six months after when they went back, there was nothing. Everything disappeared. So obviously that is the effect of the hormones in the pregnancy. And it's very easy to study in the borderline. Probably in the high grade it has an effect, but we don't know. It's difficult to prove. Yeah, and then uh, Elvia, obviously, you you made some really uh, strong points in in support of of the principle of the of the morphology of the tissue. Um, we'll ask you now uh, on a broader basis. You know, now you know pathology as a field seems to be moving towards more emphasis on molecular biomarkers and and you know much more uh, extensive and, and detailed analysis rather than just the morphology of the tissue. How, how does this all fit into the diagnostic algorithm of ovarian cancer origin? Yeah, I think that the, we, we should use molecular studies and they are very important. Uh, my problem with molecular people in uh, ovarian cancer, I, I have a big problem with them. I have a disagreement. Um, they, I don't know if you are familiar with the prototype uh, classification. The, a group of 50 molecular people, GYM, uh, they got together and they came out with a new classification, the prototype classification. It was published in 2020. 
they came out with four types. They study only high-grade zero carcinoma, okay? And the, the four types are mesenchymal, immunoreactive, proliferative, and differential. Okay, so imagine that you are in the clinic and you say, Elvio, uh, what, what uh, this patient has? Uh, I say, well, it's a high-grade carcinoma mesenchymal type. What are you gonna do? <laughs> you don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what to tell the patient. This is ridiculous. Why do they come up with something completely different, ignoring so many years of pathology, clinical, oncology? We, you have a lot of experience on high-grade zeros, stage two, stage three. You know low-grade zeros. And the, now, suddenly, we have a completely different classification uh, with disregard of everything that we know. It will be, I always say that the best example to me on the molecular research is the what happened, what's going on in renal cell carcinoma. In the mm -hmm. 70s, we have renal cell cancer. That's it, there was only one, like zero carcinoma. Then the pathologists started separating the tumors with a microscope. This one has clear cell, this one has oxyphilic cell, this one has a moon mass, and this, one has a spindle cells, and then the researchers got each one of those types and study, and they found different mutations. And now, hopefully, they are going to find different treatment for those mutations. But that is the way to go, and you know what we are talking about. But if I tell you that the patient has a mesenchymal type, that, that, that creates a huge problem. So I don't know why the molecular people didn't follow what we know, you know. When I look at an ovarian uh, high-grade zeros, I know some are papillary, some are solid, some are sifty, some are micropapillary, some are macropapillary, some have deep invasion, some are very well demarcated. We can separate the different types, and each one of those types is gonna have some kind of different mutation because what we see with the microscope is the what it comes from the genes. So that is uh, regarding the molecular research. The other thing is about the biomarkers, that, uh, that, that is related to the same thing. Biomarkers are great. Yes, you, this is something that you are using today for the patient. But you have to understand that it's not curative. It's going to be just prolong the disease. And uh, if we go by history, I remember in the, uh, probably 20 years ago about the Glivac. Glivac, when Glivac was started by, to treat cases with a CKT mutation for the gastrointestinal stromal tumor, I remember in the newspaper in Houston, the gene doctors, uh, the, the cancer is going to change and blah, blah, blah. 70% responded to the treatment. And what happened? They came back with another mutation because, you know, it's naive to think that we are going to treat one mutation and it's going to change everything. So today, you want to know, is this BRCA, is HER2, is uh, HRD, whatever? Uh, yeah, that is great. This is something that is great for the patient today, but not all patients are gonna respond. There are gonna be side effects and it's a very expensive treatment. Hmm. And the most important, it's not gonna cure the cancer because you, we are not doing the proper thing, which is uh, finding the problem. 
Great, Elias. So I, I have just uh, two more questions. I want to be respectful of your time as well. And, and just kind of like bring it in into the, the clinical relevance. You know, certainly there are some who might say, well, you know, we, we really don't have a, a good screening test for ovarian cancer. Uh, you know, certainly now it's become part of a standard to remove the fallopian tubes for the potential prevention of ovarian cancer. So there are some who might say, well, what what does it matter to know what uh, is the origin of ovarian cancer? What would you say to them? Well, I said to them something that is in the Journal of Common Sense. <laughs> you cannot fix a problem if you don't understand the problem. And the second thing is every problem starts at the beginning, not at the end. Ovarian cancer is the end of the problem. So we need to go to the beginning to understand the problem. And that is why I think that if we put the concept of embryology uh, and if we put the problem with the hormones, how the Mullerian duct develops, how endosalpingiosis appears, then we are going to understand the problem. Today, the only thing, the only two things that you can offer a patient is one is, okay, we are going to wait for the tumor to develop. And when this, you develop the tumor, come here, we are going to look for mutations and you are going to treat it. And we already went over this, that's no curative. The other possibility is salpingoforectomy, the risk reduction salpingoforectomy. You know, it's, it's good for the BRCA cases, but BRCA cases are a minority. So for the others, uh, ovarian cancer is, I don't know, less than 1%. So you are going to do 100 cases to say one. And, uh, you know, I. It's good when you are old, you have a lot of memories. I remember in the 80s, there were papers of surgeons offering to patients with family history of ovarian cancer, they were offering uh, ophorectomy, salpingophorectomy to avoid the problem. And the, the, that thing was done, and that, that, that was the beginning of the risk reduction salpingophorectomy. But it was very interesting. I remember clearly there was a paper where they said that 10% of those patients after a negative salpingoforectomy came back with peritoneal carcinomatosis. Why? Because you didn't solve the problem. It's very simple. And that is what we are seeing today. I mean, these patients with risk reduction, uh, they are, some of them are coming back with peritoneal carcinomatosis. And I don't know if you know, but only hysterectomy is going to reduce the number of ovarian cancer. So there is something else related, which is not specifically the origin of the stick. And the other question that I would like to ask of all the people that go for the risk reduction, if the problem is in the tube, why don't you take the ovary? I mean, it doesn't make sense. The ovary is going to bring you a lot more problems. So take only the tube. But they don't do that. So Elvia, one last oh, question. Yeah. Uh, you know, certainly we have, as you mentioned, the theory by Crum and Kerman, theory by Scully. Uh, you're supporting, um, you know, obviously some of the points that were brought up by Scully as well. Moving forward, where where is this field going as it pertains to finding the origin of ovarian cancer? Yeah. Well, with all the theories around, you know, Pedro, the answer is very simple. I am the only one from Argentina. <laughs> and we are we are the champions. So that, that's okay. uh, I believe I believe in the theory because it's based on the daily review of the slides for many 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 years. 
I believe in this theory because it agrees with, with Dr. Scali said a fantastic GYN pathology. I believe in this because of the animal studies. Uh, so th th there is a lot of evidence that, uh, that says that this theory is correct. And the, the, the thing is, you know, we, we knew about the fallopian tube since year 2000. So people have been putting money on money in the fallopian tube. And after 20 years, we have got nowhere. So I think it's time for a change. Money should be put in other area, for example, this. And I always say, if the theory is good, in very few years, you are gonna see the result. You don't need to wait 20 years. Three, four years, you are gonna see immediate result, but you, you have to support uh, the theory, okay? Elvio, thank you so, so much. It's always uh, such a pleasure speaking with you. I always learn so much uh, when we uh, have these discussions. Um, thank you again for all of the contributions you made to the care of women with uh, gynecologic cancers and, and to pathology as it relates to gynecologic cancers. And, uh, and once again, congratulations also on winning the World Cup for Argentina. Congratulations on that. I'm sure you're very, very happy about it. And, uh, and thank you for always accepting our invitation. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Pedro, for the invitation. Thank you, Arthur. Uh, it is a pleasure. Uh, I have been so lucky working with so many great GYN oncologists like you. Many years I worked with David Bergenson. I also found very good people in Cedar Sinai and Baylor in Dallas. They always helped me. Uh, I, I hope that with all this, we are going to see a change soon and that's going to improve the, the care of patients. Uh, I also want to thank that is a I, I talk about this ever, over and over. Sometimes there is a person in Dallas, Cristina Verduno, who is helping me. Some people understand this immediately. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I would like this to, to be more open and I don't understand how investors or grants are giving to something that is not going anywhere. Uh, so this is great. Uh, I hope we, we continue the dialogue. I, in the meantime, I'm going to continue the dialogue with the slide. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much, Elvio. Okay. Okay. Bye, Bye, Arthur. Thank you.